You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Once upon a time, there was a little house way out in the country. She was a pretty little house, and she was strong and well-built. The man who built her so well said, This little house shall never be sold. She will live to see our great-grandchildren living in her. This is my friend Mackie. He's reading from a famous children's book called The Little House. It came out in 1942, and it's about a house that gets built out in the country. But then roads start coming in, and then more houses, and then the house gets surrounded by apartments and factories. Let's just skip ahead to the middle. Pretty soon there was an elevated train going back and forth above the little house. The air would fill with dust and smoke, and the noise was so loud that it shook the little house. You can see where this is going. As the city grows, the little house gets more and more broken down. Busted windows, cracked paint, Things aren't looking so good, but then the great-great-granddaughter of the man who built the house sees it when she's walking by one day, and she decides to rescue it, with the help of some professionals. The movers looked at the little house all over and said, It's sure this house is good as ever. She's built so well we can move her anywhere. So they jacked up the little house and put her on wheels. Traffic was held up for hours as they slowly moved her out of the city. The story ends with the little house living happily out in the country again, with a fresh paint job. Did you know that you can move houses? That's crazy, right? Right. I'm doing a whole story all about that, how people sometimes pick up houses and move them to different places. I know. Okay, cool. Thanks, Mackie. Anything else you want to say? (laughs) (laughs) I discovered that book after I kind of fell down a rabbit hole of researching the history of what is technically called structural relocation. It's not just houses. People have moved giant churches, lighthouses, whole apartment buildings, you name it. Some of the pictures are hard to believe. Seeing a huge building on the back of a truck, it's like, I don't know, seeing an elephant riding a person. There is something about the idea of picking up a whole building that conjures up a kind of childlike sense of wonder. At least that's how I felt when I found out that a bunch of the old houses in Preservation Park weren't originally built there. If you're not familiar, Preservation Park is this little mini-neighborhood of super beautiful old houses right next to downtown Oakland. I always just thought it was like the two blocks they decided to save when everything else was getting torn down to make room for high-rises and freeways. But that's only half right. The houses on the north side of 13th Street were built there, but the 11 houses on the other side of Preservation Park weren't. Most of these gorgeously detailed turn-of-the-century Victorians were moved out of the path of the 980, when that highway was being built around 1970. After losing so much during the 880 construction a generation earlier, people wanted to save a few architectural gems this time around. You don't normally think of buildings as 
things that can be picked up and moved around. Preservation Park changed my perspective. It sent me down a path that started with looking for other relocated structures in the East Bay. And I did find some really crazy examples, huge buildings, but the stories behind these moves turned out to be a lot more complex than I was expecting. Now I'm questioning a lot of the things I took for granted about authenticity and technology and preservation. But you know what? Before I get too philosophical, let's just jump into the story. And uh, I had to break some rules to do my research for this one, so I hope none of you guys are tattletales, okay? Cool, thanks. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm Liam O'Donoghue. Stick around. It began in the gold rush era um, when there was far more people coming than there were houses to accommodate them and far more people coming than there were resources to start putting up new buildings. That's Diane Donovan. She wrote a book called San Francisco Relocated. And now she's working on ones about the East Bay and the North Bay. She's been interested in the topic ever since she found out the house she was living in as a kid had been moved from somewhere else. Here's how it all started. When the people started flooding in, the cities were changing a lot of the grid lines and the streets and making new streets and a lot of the pathways that they had been using. They want, if they wanted to change a street and move it over here, well, gee, there's a house sitting here. How can we do that? Well, nowadays, you'd probably just tear it down. But back then, there was a shortage of material. So all those doors and windows and wood came pretty dearly. So you didn't tear down something that was constructed. You hired somebody to move it someplace. In California back then, if you wanted windows or doorknobs, you couldn't just run to Home Depot. The Transcontinental Railroad and the Panama Canal didn't exist yet. So supplies were always hard to get. And there were a lot of fires, which made competition for milled lumber even tougher, since people's houses kept burning down. So if a city decided they wanted to move your house out of the way so they could build a road, you just hired some dudes with horses or oxen to get your house up on some cribbing and drag it to a new plot. Sometimes they even rolled buildings on logs. In Alameda County, the, the earliest I have right here is a 1856 in Dublin, a, a schoolhouse moved twice, um, and then 1881, and there's all these buildings in the 1800s that it was more common for things to be moved then than it is now. That Dublin schoolhouse first got moved because it kept getting flooded, and then more than 100 years later, they moved it again when the 580 came in. Now it's a little history museum called the Murray Schoolhouse. Anyway, not all these operations went smoothly. There's several house moves that killed, killed the movers. You know, they were under the house or the house fell off the truck and killed them. Yeah, there's a couple of things in the East Bay that happened where it made the paper. And just like a one-liner, oh, you know, Fred the house mover got crushed beneath his house and died. Starting around the 1930s and 40s, hydraulic jacks and more powerful truck engines replaced horses and rope. This made it possible to move bigger buildings but there were a lot of new challenges, too. You had your utilities going up, more and more poles. Um, you had public transit that you had to stop if you wanted to move a house. 
um, the more congested the city became and the more utilities and public transit and other things were involved in a house move, the harder it became to get a permit to move a house at all. A few years ago, a guy in L.A. tried to move a house without the right planning, and it got stuck on the freeway for 10 days after he hit a bridge. Stuff like this, house movers getting stuck in the middle of the street or just tearing up the road, used to be such a problem back in the day that Mark Twain wrote a column complaining about it when he lived in San Francisco. To keep things simple, most relocations cover as little distance as possible. One of the most epic moves in Oakland history is a good example of this. In 1951, the Olympic Hotel moved across the street from one corner of 2nd Avenue and East 12th to another. This hotel had 72 rooms. I'll post a picture on the East Bay Yesterday Facebook page so you can see how big it was. Anyway, the city was building what came to be known as the world's shortest freeway near the southeast corner of Lake Merritt, so the Olympic had to get out of the way. There's another Oakland mega move from the early 50s that happened because of infrastructure development, but I'll let Naomi Schiff tell this one. I'm Naomi Schiff, and I've been in the East Bay since 71. Naomi's a board member of the Oakland Heritage Alliance, a historic preservation group that also does a lot of really great walking tours. Okay, this story is about the Buddhist Church of Oakland, which was started by Japanese immigrants back in 1901. They had just come back from World War II internment, and so this congregation was pretty beat up. So they, they had, many families had stored their stuff in that church, and there was a non-Japanese person who safeguarded it. And they came back, and a lot of people even slept in there when they came back to Oakland. And then after not very long, Caltrans, or whatever the old name for that was, said, oh, you'll have to knock down your church. We're going to put the freeway through here. It was in a part of Chinatown that was destroyed by the freeway. That would be the Nimitz, a.k.a. 880. And they acquired a piece of property and forced Caltrans to help pay for the move and rolled it up the street, uh, Jackson Street, I think it is, and uh, did not, just weren't going to accept having destroyed. This church is still on the corner of 9th and Jackson, and it's large. You'd never know from looking at it now that it got chopped in half and moved three blocks on a bunch of trucks. Okay, this next one is crazy because it didn't use trucks. You know that restaurant, Quinn's Lighthouse? It's uh, on the waterfront a little east of Jack London Square. Well, it used to be at the mouth of the Oakland Harbor back when it was a real lighthouse. In 1965, they put it on a barge and floated it up the estuary. Which sounds kind of chill, but moving structures on the water brings up a whole nother set of challenges. Here's Diane again. Barge moves, are, especially on the San Francisco Bay, are a little bit problematic because of the winds. Um, the tide has to be right, but the winds come up in the afternoon. 
So you have to be pretty careful when you're putting a building onto a barge and moving it. And there's a couple barge moves that I have photos of in my record somewhere that almost went awry. You can see the house actually tipping on the barge because somebody didn't calculate the tide right or forgot that the afternoon winds come up. Up until the 1960s, most relocations happened for pretty practical reasons. It was just cheaper or easier to move a building than construct a new one from scratch. But starting around this time, a new concept started gaining traction. Historic preservation. I like the way Diane sums this up. Individuals saw the things that they liked going away and became determined to find a way to save them. This was the era when highways were coming in and big buildings were going up. So a lot of cities were being totally redesigned from the ground up. At that time, there was a big drive to, well, let's take all these old buildings down and put some wonderful modern things up. You know, who needs these old structures? They're all fire hazards anyway. You know, in those days, they were thinking, well, we're just going to build some modern new buildings and it's going to look so much better and we're going to get high rents for them. So part of it was a financial thing. Racism also played a big role. A lot of these projects were framed as quote-unquote slum clearance. White people who were moving out to the suburbs still wanted to be able to commute back and forth to the city easily, which is one of the big reasons for the highways. If a bunch of poor brown and black neighborhoods had to be demolished to make room, they didn't give a shit. The planners called it urban renewal, but author James Baldwin and a lot of people on the ground called it Negro removal. In West Oakland, they literally brought in tanks, actual military tanks, to smash people's wooden houses into splinters. Can you imagine? You've got this house, it's all you've got. You know, it's big and it's old and it needs repair, but it's your house. And you've got a business on the ground floor because businesses also were displaced. And then someone comes in and says, well, you know, your house is blighted and so are you, and we're going to, you know, take it over here and tear your whole neighborhood down around you. And it, it really uh, destroyed a lot of lives. It wasn't just highways that were changing the face of cities. In the 70s, condos started replacing a lot of old houses. Some people didn't like seeing so many historic homes getting bulldozed, and they didn't like the displacement of their residents either. One of these folks was Naomi Schiff, who moved near Lake Merritt in 1978 after getting evicted from her own place. One day, when she was out walking her dog, she realized that one of her favorite buildings in the neighborhood was condemned. I became aware that the tenants in there were being pushed out by a new owner. And it was right on the, at the dawning of the condo era, and I had been pushed out by a condo developer previously. Uh, in a house I lived in over near Piedmont Avenue. Naomi did some research and found out that the house, which had been subdivided up into apartment units, had some historical significance. The original owner was Victor Metcalf, who was a politician in Teddy Roosevelt's cabinet. And the architect was Walter Matthews, who designed a bunch of important buildings, like the First Unitarian Church on 14th and Castro. A little neighborhood group sprung up to save the building, they sued the city, and it worked. We got a writ of mandate, and the judge decided that, yes, they did have to do an EIR, and they did an EIR, and, and we won. Just FYI, an EIR is an environmental impact review, okay? 
One of the things EIRs look at is historic resources that might be impacted by new development. And that actually was a precedent-setting decision um, because it was early in the history of this kind of thing. Even though Naomi's group won in court, they still didn't totally win because the developer was able to mitigate the historic impact by, you guessed it, moving the house. It is now at 14th and Brush. It's a stuccoed building with a tile roof, and you'll know it because it has two concrete, I think, sphinxes, one on each side of the stairs, which is still there. And the building was cut in three pieces to move it, and it was quite an operation. Around this same time, the Oakland Heritage Alliance was just forming, and pretty soon Naomi joined the board. I think sometimes people knock groups like this by saying that historic preservation is just about nostalgia or people not wanting cities to change. So I asked Naomi, what are the benefits of this kind of work? I think there is aesthetic value. I think there's a cultural heritage value or cultural history value. In historic preservation, one also looks at associations with people and times and cultural movements, and we got a lot of that kind of stuff, so that some relatively modest building will turn out to be, oh, you know, the Marcus Garvey headquarters in West Oakland. Oakland is particularly rich in social movements, and I keep discovering them, um, that there will be some new thing I'll find out that makes me realize, oh, this was here. Oh, okay. I think when you when you throw out free house, it it sparks people's attention. That's Paul Grafakis. He works for a real estate developer called Low Enterprises. And those free houses he's talking about are, or were, depending on when you listen to this episode, on Brook Street, near 30th and Broadway. See, the company that Paul works for bought these houses for the land. They want to put an apartment up on the property. Oh, and the houses weren't actually free. They were on sale for $1 each. But, of course, there was a catch. You have to come in and prove to us that, you know, you could legitimately pull this off. Okay, so Oakland's got these historic preservation rules where before developers can knock down certain kinds of old houses, they have to see if anyone wants to come and take them away. The houses on Brook Street are both over 100 years old And they're pretty cool looking, but there's nothing particularly historic about them, which landed them in Category C of Oakland's preservation rating system. In technical terms, that makes them knockdownable. But putting homes on the market for less than the price of a taco usually does stir up interest. I've received over, well over 80 calls. And of those 80 calls, I would say 60 had no idea what they were doing. Remember, moving a house, pretty complicated. It's widths of the street. It's um, utility lines, traffic lights, overcrossings, bridges, anything in real life that could prevent you from moving the house. You name it. It could be anything, really. A parked car could stop you from moving it. You know what I mean? Before I started researching this story, I thought that the main reason somebody would move houses like these would be for aesthetic reasons. Old houses just look cool, right? Authenticity, character, all that. 
But there are practical reasons too. Just like in the 1800s, moving a house can still be cheaper than building a new one from scratch. And it's not just an issue of cost, it's also quality. The cool thing about these old homes is uh, you look in the, the bones of the building, like the actual studs, and it's like redwood, just hard redwood that's not going to warp or it's just, it's been there and it's, it's gone through the test of time. So new construction is not, I mean, in terms of a home, you know, Kaufman Broad over there does not build a house as good as they built back in the 1910s. Just the materials just aren't even, you can't even get materials that good. I don't know anything about construction, so I was pretty surprised by this. I mean, look at every other technology now compared to 100 years ago, and there's been so much progress. But something as fundamental as houses, and this guy is telling me that we're going backwards? I was a little skeptical, so I asked for an example, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but a lot of it has to do with wood. Douglas fir from tree farms is what most builders use now. And for a lot of reasons, that stuff sucks compared to redwood. It's more than just the materials. For example, Diane Donovan told me that support beams were a lot thicker back then because people just built things to last long. It's not necessarily that they don't build them like they used to because they can't. It comes down to values. I think it's part of the disposable society, too. I mean, back then when they built these houses, there's the expectation that generations would live in them, not just, you know, you would live in them for five or ten years and then turn around and sell it, and other people would come in and they would be coming and going. You had more of a feeling that this is a house that, that you were going to live in, your children were going to live in, you know, it was going to be inherited and go down the line and built to last. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of turnover and a lot of, a lot of what I call disposable attitude that, oh, well, if it breaks, just junk it, don't fix it. I think that's spilled over into a lot of different things, and it's had an effect on the quality of appliances, houses. Um, I mean, if you, if you view most of these things as, as temporary, then you're not going to build it as strong as, you, as if you think, boy, this is better last for three generations. This house was built out of virgin redwood. Just the material value, you would hate to, if you wrecked all the redwood buildings in Oakland, how many forests would you be cutting down a second time? That's Naomi Schiff again. She's referring to how Oakland used to have some of the tallest trees in the history of the world. Having squandered that resource to turn it into building materials, you don't want to now squander the building materials. So there's also an ecological kind of factor to this where um, before you throw stuff in the waste stream, you want to think about what is this that it's made out of. A few months ago, a 116-year-old brown shingle duplex in Berkeley moved eight blocks after the new owners paid $1 for it. As far as the houses on Brook Street, things aren't looking so bright. They're going to be recycled. That's, that's the downside is it's not always a not always a good story. The plan is to pull out whatever can be reused and then knock them down. The salvage materials will go to a specialty supplier. So if you're one of the many people renovating houses in Oakland now, maybe a piece of one of these will end up in your home.
The Brook Street move isn't happening, but there is one relocation project, and it's a big one that probably will. The Oak Knoll Officers Club. The man behind it is Jim Heilbronner. He's the same architect who helped renovate two of downtown's most historic gems, the Fox Theater and the Rotunda Building. Here's a little background on Oak Knoll, which is in the hills above deep east Oakland. Jim Heilbronner. Oak Knoll is a different kind of cat. It goes back, basically goes back to the same era when it was built, but for a clubhouse, as a clubhouse for a golf course. The era he's talking about is the late 1920s, early 30s. At some point, the Navy, I'm going to say, bought, confiscated, condemned, and took the golf course and the land uh, to build a naval hospital facility, a military facility. This happened around World War II, and, okay, here's just a little bit of random trivia. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of the Church of Scientology, came up with his theory of Dianetics while he was laid up at Oak Knoll Hospital for a few months during the war. Weird, huh? Anyway, the Navy base closed in the 90s, and a developer bought it for $100 million. But... That deal went upside down during the bad recession where Lehman Brothers went out of business, who was the equity partner. So then it went back on the shelf and uh, a few years ago came back to life again. And all the buildings out there, pretty much everything's been raised and taken away, except for the original clubhouse slash officers club slash graffiti laden bad condition building. Okay, so here we are at the clubhouse. It's really big, like 14,000 square feet. It's over 50 years old, and it's a stucco mission-style building with a tower on it. You know, it's got some interesting architectural features, but it's not a, uh, I wouldn't call it a gem. I'm not going to get into all the controversy around the plans for the new Oak Knoll development, how big it should be, how dense it should be, how much open space, yada, 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 except to say... What to do about the clubhouse has been one of the main battles. This fight has been going on for years between the developer, the people who already live in the neighborhood, and historic preservationists. What should happen to the clubhouse? Where will the traffic and parking lots go? Does it even deserve to be saved? We were asked to get involved during a long fight between the city and the developer on tear it down or don't tear it down. And that's where the battle lines were drawn. Both sides were, were on the legal track. It wasn't fun. It wasn't good. It wasn't going anywhere. When I got involved, I asked them to give me a week to try to figure something out, and, and it was basically pretty simple. It's like, why don't we just move the building, get it away from the neighbors, uh, open up the land for new homes, uh, and put it on a site that you were going to put a community center building anyway. When Jim puts it like this, it sounds easy, right? But uh, he's never actually relocated a structure before. No, I've never moved one before. The um, the biggest move I did was out of college. I'm out out of my room in college. Despite the lack of experience, Jim says he's excited about the idea of bringing another old building back to life. I mean, everybody loves the Fox. Everybody loves the Rotunda. People are getting to enjoy and experience part of history in today's world. And you can't replace that with photos. Jim's right. 
seeing pictures is nothing compared to actually immersing yourself in history. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that I had to break some rules to research this story. And, yep, I snuck into this place. I jumped a fence, got chased by security, somehow managed to pull myself up over the back wall next to a giant fireplace, which kind of messed up my shoulder, ran inside, and hid in a closet full of spiders for about 10 minutes. After that, I explored. The view from up in the tower is pretty great, but my favorite part was just standing all by myself in the balcony, overlooking the ballroom. It was silent, except for the breeze, and I just looked down at that dusty wooden floor and imagined people dancing. Men in navy uniforms, women in gowns. In my mind, they were... they were there. is that the plan to move this building could fall apart and it could still be demolished. And I just had to see it up close for myself. And I'm glad I did, because even if the clubhouse does get moved, will it really be the same building? Again, Naomi Schiff. The proposal is hard to understand because it seems like, it seems like actually there's an awful lot of reconstruction involved, uh, mostly of the walls. <laughs> but what is a building without its walls? So is the, the question that we keep asking is, is this actually being moved? Or are you building a new building and hanging some old parts on it? Here's how Jim describes the plan. We basically have a design that says we're going to move this building to a new site, put it on a new foundation, with new utilities to the building and uh, new systems in the building because there's none left in the old mechanical, electrical, plumbing, fire protection at all. And, uh, you know, consider all the ADA accessibility issues. Basically, you have back to that model of all new in an old building and uh, basically build a steel frame skeleton on the new site, take the building apart from the old site transport it over to the skeleton, and pin it back together. That idea basically solves the structural issues of the building being current code compliant for uh, structural integrity. Jim says there's really no way to save the walls. Old plaster, various contaminants, there are a lot of issues. In order to make this building, which is really trashed right now, inhabitable again, it's going to have to lose some of its authenticity. You can't just wind back the clock and unbreak things. And speaking of breaking things, I was curious if the big fireplace chimney thing in the courtyard was going to be moved too. And Jim was surprisingly candid. Well, it's supposed to be, but that could be one of the first, uh, uh, one of the first collapses I have. It's like that, what's that block game where you stack blocks and you pull them out? Jenga? It could be my first Jenga loss. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, 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 we're, we're, things are going to happen to us, and it's not a...
Even though this episode is about the history of structure relocation, I want to end by looking at the future because there might be another boom for house movers coming up soon, especially right here in the Bay Area. Diane Donovan with a final thought. One of the house movers that operates out of Sacramento was saying that he thought that um, in the future, as climate change affects our coastal areas, that there may be actual more of a call for house movers and move buildings. Because as those buildings are threatened, people will be more interested in picking them up and moving them somewhere. His idea was that, you know, sometime in the next 20 years, house moving again is going to become a bigger business than it is right, rather than fading out like it is now. Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. For this episode, I want to thank Gene Anderson, Betty Marvin, Daniel Levy, Dorothy Londigan, Kurt Kolstad, Lori Spears, and A.C. Thompson. Also, Francis Dinkenspiel, who wrote a great article about the Berkeley house move for Berkeley Side. Also, I want to thank KPFA-FM, where you can now find East Bay Yesterday in the podcast section of their website. It's called Area 941. I'm still trying to figure out how to make this show sustainable. So if you know of any foundations or grant programs or donors that might be a good fit for East Bay Yesterday, please hit me up. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as upcoming events and other cool local history news. There's going to be a ton of really cool photos for this episode, so follow Instagram, Facebook, you know the deal. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. If you like the show, please spread the word. I have absolutely no marketing budget, zero, so I'd really appreciate it. And if you give East Bay Yesterday a shout out on social media, please be sure to tag it and review it on iTunes too. That really helps. Music for this episode was provided by Lee Rosevere, Tab and Anatech, and Dana Boole. The theme song music came from Anatech. Oh, and if you want to see a really great documentary about the history of Oakland blues, go to E14 Gallery on Friday the 20th to see Evolutionary Blues. I wrote a review of this really wonderful film that you can read at KQED Arts. Okay, see you around.